1: Now, if you're interested in food safety, and most of all the dreaded toxins in your food, the internet has a funny way of inflating the actual risk presented by modern food chemistries and crop protection strategies. In the industrialized world, we really enjoy access to the safest food supply in human history. We appreciate that more when we start to look at the issues in the developing world and some of the vexing problems that threaten human health from foodborne toxins. But these toxins, they, they don't come from the farmer. They come from nature. Carcinogenic compounds are a result from specific fungal infections that have a tremendous impact on human health. And today we're going to discuss this phenomenon with Dr. Felicia Wu, and she's the John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor at Michigan State University. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Wu.
2: Thank you, Kevin, it's wonderful to be here.
1: It's really nice to talk to you. I It's uh, twice in the same month maybe, I think.
2: <laughs> That's right. First time in person. So
1: there's many topics that you and I could have uh, worked on that you've uh, that you've covered in your scholarly work, uh, which really revolves around risk assessment. And well, could you tell us a little bit about what actually you do in your appointment, and maybe a little bit about the chair that you hold?
2: Absolutely, I'm happy to do that. So there are several John Hanna Distinguished Professors at Michigan State University. We were brought into these positions based on a request from a former president of Michigan State University, John Hanna. He was president from the 1940s to the 1960s, and then he endowed these particular endowed chairs with simply... The request to do good work for mankind. So that's quite wonderful. So the John Hanna professors at MSU are in a variety of different topics. My area, my endowed chair, is in food safety, toxicology, and risk assessment. But I have friends and colleagues who are working in areas from plant photosynthesis to the evolution of E. coli to food policies in Nigeria. There's so many different areas. And then there are some areas in the humanities as well.
1: Yeah, well, this is really exciting. I think that for the benefit of mankind fits what we're going to talk about today very closely. And is a topic that has been really near and dear to my heart for a long time. Um, I've had the opportunity to travel in the developing world and meet many people. And one of the things you find is in a lot of the places you go, you don't meet a lot of old people and chronic illness that comes from foodborne contaminants is a serious issue. And I wanted to talk to you about that because I think most people don't know what these are. And these are a class of compounds that we refer to as mycotoxins. And could you tell me first, what are mycotoxins?
2: I'm happy to do that. Mycotoxins are the toxins or poisons that are produced by fungi or molds that grow in our food crops or in our food in general. So I'm sure everybody listening in to this podcast have seen examples, plenty of examples over your lifetimes of moldy food. And typically we have the luxury in the United States to throw out that moldy food. I think what many people don't realize is that Certainly the mold, if you see it, that's a sign that your food has spoiled. But in addition to that, that mold might very well be producing toxins that are carcinogenic. That is, they cause cancer in humans. And the sad thing is that while we in the United States have the luxury of being able to throw out obviously moldy or spoiled food in many parts of the world where food is more scarce, that's not always a possibility.
1: that's a, it's a really important point because when we see something even start to go a little bit bad, I mean, I've had roommates who would throw out a gallon of milk just because it reached the date on the label, you know, Mm -hmm. and food waste is such a problem here, but, but, but in some places you don't have that luxury and how bad is it really in terms of the actual risk? I mean, where do we see effects of the toxins in these molds?
2: Well, there's many different types of mycotoxins and the group that's the notice being the most toxic and the most cancer causing are called the aflatoxins. And sometimes this is simply shortened to aflatoxin to describe this group. And these are mycotoxins that are produced by the fungi Aspergillus Flavus and Aspergillus parasiticus that primarily infect corn and peanuts and a variety of tree nuts like almonds, pistachios, walnuts, macadamia nuts, hazelnuts, all of the the nuts. Mostly because, so the aspergillus genus of fungi tend to prefer warm climates. So aflatoxin is typically a problem in foods that are grown between roughly maybe 32 degrees north and 32 degrees south latitude. If you can imagine that, like that band around the equator, typically the tropical and subtropic regions of the world.
1: And why are they not such a problem in the United States? I mean, we grow lots of corn, things like that. Isn't this something that could show up here because these fungal, like aspergillus is rather ubiquitous.
2: It is rather ubiquitous, Kevin. And in fact, aflatoxin is a problem here in the United States as well. It's perennially a problem in corn and peanuts that are grown in the Southern U.S. states. Every once in a while, I guess the most recent example was 2012, when there are very hot and dry summers throughout the Midwest, that aflatoxin ceases to be only a problem in the U.S. south, and it actually migrates northward, such that a large proportion of the corn belt has aflatoxin problems as well. And that's why there were such huge economic losses to the tune of over $1 billion to U.S. corn growers in that particular year, 2012, because of the high aflatoxin levels in corn.
1: Wow. So when you say that there's high levels, but obviously we're, and in, in losses, obviously we must have some sort of system that can monitor and, and, and catch it and, and, and solve the problem. So how is that different in the United States versus the developing world?
2: I'm happy to go into that in a little bit. So here in the United States, the Food and Drug Administration or FDA is the agency that has set what are called action levels for aflatoxin in food. Action levels, practically speaking, for us to think about is that FDA says this amount of aflatoxin is allowable in, say, our corn chips and our peanut butter and our almonds, but then any higher than that, and it is not allowable for human consumption. And they have different levels for human food and for pet food. That is at 20 parts per billion, and that means that FDA allows 20 micrograms of aflatoxin for every kilogram of food. But then for other types of animal feed, for livestock and poultry, like chickens and swine and cattle, there are all these different action levels. And typically they're a little bit more relaxed. And FDA does regulate aflatoxin pretty stringently and does enforce aflatoxin regulations, not just for the food that we produce in the United States, but also food that we're importing from other countries. In many other parts of the world, there are over 100 countries around the world that have set maximum allowable levels of aflatoxin in their their food, but whether those standards are in fact enforced is another question.
1: Well, I guess that's kind of the big deal because it's only as good as the sampling. So they must be sampling here and there and occasionally looking for this stuff, but no farmer wants to lose an entire crop that he sends to market or she sends to market So what do farmers do to protect against it? Or is it just a question of knowing the weather and knowing when you might have a problem or how do they deal with it?
2: That's a great question, Kevin, because the enforcement of aflatoxin action levels occurs in the United States all along the food supply chain. So the grain elevators, for example, if they get a lot from a corn grower that has excessively high aflatoxin levels, then they could very easily just reject it. So in a way, the grain elevators are partnering with the FDA as well as food processors further down the line. So our food is checked for aflatoxin at many different points along the supply chain. And farmers know this. And so obviously they want to keep the aflatoxin out of their food supply, but they know that there are certain conditions, such as when there's a lot of insect damage on the corn or on the nuts, or when it's a very hot and dry summer, or when there's actual visible mold growing on their crops, then they might do something such as filing an aflatoxin-related insurance claim. Many of our farmers in the United States a purchase crop insurance that's very heavily subsidized by the U.S. government. And then when there are problems such as hail, such as other bad weather conditions, such as drought, excessive heat, a lot of insect damage, a lot of weeds, or even aflatoxin problems so they can file an insurance claim.
1: Now, you mentioned the threshold is at 20 parts per billion, like the action level, that's correct?
2: that's for yes that is for human food and for pet food
1: for human food and pet food the reason i wanted to bring that up just one more time is to put that in perspective for the listening audience that 20 parts per billion is 20 seconds and 32 years
2: <laughs> that's a great way of thinking about it kevin i never thought of it that way before
1: yeah it's pretty it's it's pretty thin so if you think back to 1990 And if you, I could carve out a 20 second part in uh, 1996, between one and two o'clock, you know what? I mean, you have no idea. I mean, it's such a tiny little amount, yet this is tremendously toxic stuff. And how toxic is it? Like, how does it affect human health?
2: There are many different ways that aflatoxin can affect our health and the way that we first learned about it, I'll tell a bit of a backstory, aflatoxin was discovered in 1960 in a rather tragic event. There were a number of turkey pults, that is young turkeys that consumed contaminated peanut meal in the United Kingdom and over 100,000 of them died from liver damage by the extremely high levels of aflatoxin that were in their peanut meal. And that was how scientists first discovered it. So aflatoxin is named after the causative fungus, aspergillus flavus. And not long after that, it was discovered that aflatoxin causes liver cancer and not just in, um, not just in poultry, but um, importantly for the purposes of food safety regulation, aflatoxin causes liver cancer in humans. One of our recent analyses showed that up to, maybe about 155,000 people around the world every year are dying from aflatoxin-related liver cancer. And that's especially a problem if your liver is already compromised in some way. For example, if you're chronically infected with hepatitis B virus or hepatitis C virus, then consuming a little bit of aflatoxin in your peanut butter, in your nuts, or in your corn products means that your liver cancer risk increases by quite a large amount.
1: And you, you mentioned that was 155,000
2: per year? As an upper bound, yes.
1: As an upper bound, I guess, because I, well, it's also that a lot of the worst problems with aflatoxin may be in places where the reporting isn't necessarily the best either. And you may see people, well, he died, you know, and that they don't go into the details of how. And, I, and that's why I think this, you know, just my gut feeling is that this is a much more insidious problem than we really detect.
2: I think that's definitely true. And what we did was what's called a quantitative cancer risk assessment. So we didn't necessarily go to records of different countries and say, well, how many people died of aflatoxin-related liver cancer in your country? What we did was to find out how much of corn and peanuts, so we were only focusing on corn and peanuts, how much corn and peanuts and their products do average adults consume in this particular country on a particular day? what's the prevalence of hepatitis B virus infection in that country, and how much aflatoxin has been found in corn and peanuts from that particular country or that region of the world. So we did a fairly extensive literature search on this, and then we imputed how many liver cancer cases were caused by aflatoxin. What you said earlier was right, Kevin. There's We estimated that there were exactly zero aflatoxin-related liver cancer cases in North America. In fact, most of these deaths from aflatoxin liver cancer were in sub-Saharan Africa and in South and Southeast and East Asia.
1: Wow. And when you look at issues of exports, because a lot of the developing countries, particularly uh, in Africa and some in Asia, have substantial exports to the industrialized world. So, how much does aflatoxin impact their capacity to be good exporters? Or, I mean, does this stuff sometimes get rejected when it comes to the industrialized world?
2: It definitely does, Kevin. And the, um, a story that I like to tell in that regard has to do with Iranian pistachios. So the European Union set its aflatoxin regulations for the first time um, as a as a group in 2001 it was in part precipitated by events that occurred in 1997 when the when Iran was attempting to export lots of pistachios to the European Union and at one particular port of entry they peeled aside the covering for these pistachios and found that all the pistachios had stuck together and there was slimy mold basically covering them. They tested these lots of pistachios for aflatoxin and found over 400 parts per billion. And then when a second lot from Iran came to the European Union, again with sky high aflatoxin levels, we're talking levels that could potentially kill a person from acute liver failure, or what we call acute aflatoxicosis, then the EU issued a moratorium that particular year and said, we will not accept any more pistachios from Iran. And that was for that particular year. And the interesting thing was that this also prompted technology forcing in Iran. And since that year, 1997, Iran has substantially improved how they process and store pistachios, such that aflatoxin levels are significantly lower but as a result of that moratorium, even though previously Iran had been exporting most of its pistachios to the European Union, now the EU is mostly buying its pistachios from the United States, specifically from California. Whereas Iran has found other markets for export, particularly the United Arab Emirates.
1: Wow. That's, I mean, it's, it's good that it at least advances their technology and, and raises the surveillance for this toxin. But other ways that this thing could be entering the food chain, are there ways that this moves through the food chain, like through trophic levels, like in milk or eggs, as uh, cattle may be exposed to this? Because you mentioned that the thresholds are a little higher. And does that uh, allow it to move in through those mechanisms?
2: That's a great question, Kevin. And it's different for different mycotoxins. So there's another mycotoxin called ocrotoxin A that's produced by both penicillium and aspergillus fungi. Ocratoxin A is in so many of our different foodstuffs because the aspergillus fungi, as I mentioned earlier, are warm weather fungi and the penicillium species are cold weather fungi. So Ocratoxin A is in pork and pork products. It's in wine, coffee, chocolate, beer, nuts, cereal grains. It's in so many, it's in so many different products. And as to your question about trophic levels, it is a problem if, for example, swine consume ocrotoxin, a contaminated feed, and then it shows up in their muscle meat as well as in their blood. So in blood products like, um, I think it's called black pudding, which is sometimes served in yeah, the UK. It. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's and not there's pudding a, either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, maybe if it's their definition of pudding, I'm not that's entirely right. yeah, you sure. That's I understand. Yeah, so, so blood products and even some muscle meat products. So okratoxin A does bioaccumulate there as well. And that's in the case of ocrotoxin A. And then for aflatoxin, it's a slightly different story where if dairy animals like cows and goats and sheep consume feed that has high levels of aflatoxin, then they produce a metabolite of that aflatoxin and they secrete it in the milk. We call it aflatoxin M1, and we're still working to discover what the health effects of aflatoxin M1 are.
1: Well, one of the other aspects that you brought up is the fact that at least aspergillus flavus and um, the other one, I forget the other one, but that both of those are uh, warmer weather associated uh, fungi that, that produce this toxin. And so is this increasing in range with climate change?
2: Yes, Kevin, that's a great question. In fact, we just recently, we we conducted a study and we've just submitted a paper on this topic that we were predicting where aflatoxin was likely to be a problem in U.S. corn in the years 2031 to 2040. And I don't mind giving away the (laughs) punchline for now, which is that we expect it to spread northward. And that's going to hit the corn belt states pretty hard. And so we need to be thinking about technologies that can help to reduce aflatoxin in our corn supply, because we're not just producing corn for the United States and not just for human food and animal feed and also for ethanol, but we're also exporting our corn and donating our corn all over the world. So this is a serious food security issue.
1: Wow. And so this is where, where we'll go to next. We'll talk about technology on the other side of the break to mitigate the effects of aflatoxin exposure and, and development of the fung- fungus on the crop. We're speaking with Dr. Felicia Wu. She's a professor at Michigan State University, and we're talking about mycotoxins and the new technologies that are coming, if not here already, to help mitigate their effects. This is the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra, and we'll be back in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Felicia Wu. She's the John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor at Michigan State University, uh, one of several endowed chairs under that name, who is uh, tasked with solving an important problem for humanity. And she's studying the risk that's associated with aflatoxin and other mycotoxins as they affect food security. And when, before the break, we were talking about the spread of this particular type of problem as climate change becomes more pervasive. And really the big question now is, how do we help mitigate the exposure? And so what's happening in the developing world? I answered this a little bit about Iran, but in other places in the developing world uh, in terms of uh, monitoring, Is there a lot of variation that happens between different countries or do they all follow similar protocols with similar thresholds?
2: The protocols in different countries are vastly, vastly different. And at least in part, it's because of the differences in supply chains. So one type of farming is subsistence farming. And that's still quite common in many parts of the developing world where simply the uh, the households consume whatever they produce. The, the milk from their cows, the crops, and the, ver- and the vegetables that they grow themselves. And so there is no regulatory oversight for some of these mycotoxins because they're not testing for them. They just consume whatever they're producing. In those cases, there is certainly no regulatory enforcement of mycotoxins. And then we can also consider that the food supply chains are fairly straightforward and fairly linear in the United States. You have the farmer, uh, giving their, uh, selling their crop to say a grain elevator or a handler, and then it goes to food processors, uh, it goes to distributors, it goes to our grocery stores, and then we can buy these foods as consumers in various processed or unprocessed forms. In other parts of the world, it can very easily be the case that a farmer produces a certain amount of their food, and then they just wait for um, handlers to come door to door. To their houses and say, well, this is the price that I'll offer you for your corn. And then the farmer has a choice to say, well, I don't really like that price. And then another one will come along the next day and maybe purchase it in that case. And then in some cases, all of these different lots of corn or other crops can be stored in a central facility and then sold either locally or sold more nationally. There's so many different variations on food supply chains, and that's where food safety enforcement becomes a bit more of a challenge.
1: I'm really glad you brought up the topic of, you know, subsistence farmers, because you grow, you eat what you grow, and this is mm-hmm. what your family has. And a few years ago, when I was in Uganda, I had the opportunity to meet um, Brett Ryerson, who is working with the World Food Program, and I interviewed him there And he was talking about one of the ways that they mitigate the spoilage is by placing the family's corn in a uh, hermetically sealed hopper, like a big thing in the house, like a a big cylinder that's sealed and and then the air is forced out of it. And in that vacuum, the, the fungi grow much slower because there's no oxygen to respire. And that this was a huge breakthrough in food security for subsistence farmers And then he also had these bags that they would hand out and they were sealable, like those bags you use, like the space bags for packing your, you know, clothes in the, the, in the industrialized world, they would put them in these bags and push all the air out. And he told me the story of one woman who would grow coffee and her life radically changed because she could grow a crop and transport it and harvest it. And it wouldn't spoil. And it was a very sweet and sad story. She came back to him and he said, how are you doing? Is everything going great still? And she said, no, everything's going horrible. Um, Everything's absolutely horrible. And he said, well, what happened? She said, my bag broke. Oh, no. So something as simple as a hermetically sealable plastic bag was her lifeline to becoming, moving to an entirely different level of standard of living. And that something as simple as having her bag break and not be able to be easily replaced was the difference between her being uh, a very successful farmer with and, and having some comforts and safety to going back to food insecurity it, it just shows the razor's edge that so many people live on
2: that is so true kevin and that's why it's important that if we develop technologies in certain parts of the world and then provide them in other parts of the world we have to figure out how these technologies can be sustainable in those communities such that they don't have to be waiting for another bag like the woman that you described. In fact, when you talk about those hermetically sealed bags, yes, they've proven to substantially reduce the risk of fungal spoilage and mycotoxins, simply because you're reducing the amount of, um, well, you're reducing moisture substantially, you're reducing the amount of air, of respiration. There's all kinds of benefits that have been shown by these hermetically sealed bags. If I can tell the story of an extreme contrast to that story, my colleagues and I have conducted a study in Southwestern Nigeria in which we found that typically the the corn that they're growing in the fields usually has lower than twenty parts per billion aflatoxin, which I mentioned was the u s fDA standard, so that all sounds wonderful, but the problem is that they don't eat all of that corn right away; they store it in their households in conditions that are warm, that are typically moist, that might have insect and rodent pests. And then when we tested maize that had been stored or corn that had been stored for four months, even though it had only 20 parts per billion or less at harvest, it had 1,440 parts per billion after four months of storage. That's dangerous. That's an amount that could easily kill a human being.
1: Wow, that's pretty amazing. I I remember, um, Brett, showing me that one of the things they did with world food program was to hand out instructions where you could take a standard 16 ounce soda bottle, which they still have bottles in a lot of places and add, um, uh, like a certain amount of, of salt and then a certain amount of number of kernels of corn, and then you shake it up and you leave it out. And then if the next day the corn and salt stick to the sides of the walls or the, if the salt sticks to the walls of the bottle, there's too much moisture in the corn. So it's just a way of making a hygrometer, basically, from a few simple things. And that if you can limit it to the point where the salt doesn't stick to the walls, that it just falls down, then it's safe to store. And pretty, pretty interesting. That's
2: great. <laughs> that, that's a terrific and very, I, I love that kind of easy solution where you can you know, test the safety of your food.
1: Yeah, I, I love low low rent solutions like that that are, you know, accessible and, and, and allow safety, right? but let's flip the you know flip the other side of the coin and talk about some high tech solutions because we you know talking biotech biotechnology does have a place in this and this is why i get excited about the story because here we have a substantial risk that's worldwide and spreading and of course more pronounced in some areas than others and that is really focusing on the developing world here in the industrialized world we have genetically engineered corn and specific traits that limit insect damage. So how are things like Bt effective in limiting fungal invasion and the potential production of uh, aflatoxins?
2: I'd be happy to talk a little bit about genetically modified Bt corn. I think that our audience has probably heard of Bt corn before. It's one of the earliest genetically modified crops that was planted not just in the United States, starting in 1996, but all over the world. As of today, about 82% of the corn, the field corn that we produce in the United States is BT corn. So what is it? BT stands for Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a soil bacterium. Back in the 1930s, scientists in Germany, in Turingen specifically, found that this soil bacterium killed particular insect pests. And... By the 1960s, they found a way to gather this bacterium and to use it as an organic pesticide to spray on crops to control insect pests. But then there was, that was a bit of a problem because the spray would just easily fall right off the crops or wash off or blow off really easily. And so, in the 1990s, scientists found a way to take genes from that soil bacterium, Bacillus thuringiensis, or Bt, and to insert them into the genome of corn, such that that the corn was producing its own crystal proteins that are insecticides that can control a number of different corn pests. I'll just throw out a few names, like European corn borer, corn earworm, fall armyworm, and the corn rootworm. The reason that farmers initially wanted to grow BT corn is because they wanted to avoid insect damage. It's a tale as old as time that for as long as we've had agriculture, uh, insect pests have been destroying our crops. And so anything that we can kind of throw at it to control them is a good thing. And uh, many of you probably know that up until maybe the 1920s, we were using arsenical pesticides, that is, pesticides that contained arsenic. So they were a lot more harmful than the pesticides that we have available today. Now, with a Bt corn, the insects can chew on the kernels and then that inactivates them and they don't destroy the kernels anymore. When you are able to protect the kernels in that way, then you're able to reduce the risk that the fungi will then infect the crops themselves. If any of you have ever had a garden, say you like to grow tomatoes or maybe you grow corn, you probably have seen that anytime when an insect has damaged your crops or your tomatoes, whatever they might be, there's usually this ring of mold growing around where that insect damage occurred. And that's exactly what we want to avoid in corn and nuts so that aflatoxin and other mycotoxins don't develop.
1: Yeah, it's really a, a, a tremendous asset, this BT, because the amount of Broad spectrum insecticide that needs to be sprayed is significantly lower. So, in the old days, farmers would have you know they'd hire a uh, a spray plane uh, to come over and they you know, used to call them crop dusters that would come over and spray a broad spectrum insecticide that would pretty much kill everything in the field that was an insect uh, using organophosphates as you mentioned the, ar- the arsenic based ones of, of you know a long time ago, uh, but it would kill everything in the field. Now BT. Because the insect that chews on the plant or on the plant part is directly poisoned uh, by, by that protein that, it, that is not toxic to humans or non-targets even, even other insects are barely affected. The target insect becomes, uh, it dies from it. It means you don't have to use insecticides and that you maintain a lot more insect biodiversity in that field, including the predators of the insects that are chewing on the plants. And so this is why, yeah, it's such a great, such a great solution.
2: It really is. And Kevin, thank you for bringing up that important point, that the BT crystal proteins are completely non-toxic. They're harmless to human beings and to avian species, mammalian species. They're only, they're very, very specific to their target insect pests.
1: One of the other approaches I've really liked, and actually we've had uh, guests on the podcast with um, a number of uh, guests, actually, with uh, groundnut and with corn. Um, we're around the idea of engineering plants with this technology called Higgs, which is host-induced gene silencing. So the host plant, uh, like corn or groundnut or whatever, makes a little piece of RNA that flows, that eventually moves into the fungus itself and actually shuts down the mycotoxin production. And have you seen these approaches? And what do you think about them? And and are these close to being deployed?
2: there are researchers at a number of different universities, so University of Arizona, some of my colleagues at University of Arkansas and Texas A&M, that are working on Higgs host-induced gene silencing. And it is exactly as you described, which is basically where the corn is then able to provide a message, so to speak, to the fungus to basically turn off what's called the mycotoxin biosynthetic pathway, such that um, you know, the fungus might still be alive and kicking and doing well, but it's not producing the toxin anymore. And as to whether that's actually being deployed, uh, it's not to my knowledge yet approved for reducing aflatoxin or other mycotoxins, but you probably know we have already approved a version of RNAi corn that is able to control the corn rootworm. So it's already it's already um, approved by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. A lot of folks don't understand how this can possibly work, but um when fung when a fungus, when aspergillus, a uh, certain fungi invade the plant, they have this little thing called an apressoria, this little little like little finger that moves into the plant cell and actually fuses with the plant cell cytoplasm. So stuff can flow from the plant cell into the fungus and the plant sends this little piece of RNA that shuts down the biosynthesis of, uh, Aflatoxin. It, it was a great science paper and, and or nature, one of those big ones, but wow, what a cool technology. It, it's one of those ones that gives me goosebumps. <laughs> and so,
2: Exactly. It's fascinating. If you think about, you know, host parasite interactions or, you know, symbiotic relationships, commensal relationships, you know, breaking down that communication is a key or enhancing communication is a key way to kind of optimize outcomes. So what
1: solutions are they implementing in the developing world? I know that, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, here you are uh, creating crops on your own space or maybe having a small, you know, uh, market that you serve if you're a farmer in certain areas a smallholder farmer but really this is a question of food scarcity in tonight's dinner versus worrying about well maybe I'll get sick in 20 years you know how how what's actually being done there and are people really aware of it
2: that's a great question kevin for one of my earliest projects that was funded by the gates foundation in kenya when our team uh, spoke with corn growers in Kenya, we were trying to tell them about the problem of aflatoxin and saying, you know, this causes liver cancer. This is something that, you know, could could be a problem in, say, 10 to 20 years. And they would come back to us and say, well, we don't care about what happens in 10 to 20 years. We just need to put food on the table now. And so what we found was that giving this message of cancer prevention was not Really, that effective if what they cared more about was how they could get food on the table or have some money to purchase basic supplies just for living. and so and many countries around the world have not adopted any genetically modified crops, and so they are, are not necessarily approving of BT corn as a means to reduce aflatoxin or other mycotoxins. The message that we wanted to convey, and I think the ones that are important to understand is that Uh, corn and peanuts and other crops might actually have very low levels of aflatoxin just, you know, in, in the field or when you harvest them. It's primarily storage where aflatoxin can really bioaccumulate and can cause a lot of problems. So anything that people can do to improve their food storage, which by the way, is not just for um, certain countries around the world like Kenya, but also here in the United States. I think everything that we know about how to store food better so that it lasts longer and it doesn't spoil quickly is really important. And I think most of us know the basics, keep it as cool as possible, keep it as dry as possible. It actually doesn't do that much good even if you put say a bag of you know, spinach in your refrigerator if it just happens to be well, full of moisture, it's going to spoil even in refrigerated conditions. Keep it as dry as possible. Keep it cool. Make sure there's not any sorts of pests that are running around and vectoring fungi or causing other kinds of damage. And it's true for us here in the U.S. It's true all over the world. And definitely if the food is stored for too long, then maybe it should just be Um, in certain parts of the world. Maybe it can be fed to certain animals that are more tolerant of aflatoxin or it should simply be disposed of.
1: Yeah, you know, when you mentioned the part about Uh, more worried about dinner tonight. You know, what's going on right now than 10 years. You know, we really don't focus on 10, 20 years out because food insecurity is present now. It breaks my heart because here you have technologies that exist today that we know work at least in the laboratory and in the field to some degree, and that these are not being deployed full throttle because you have you know, uh, governments in places like Kenya that for years rejected genetically engineered crops because of the paper with the uh, three lumpy rats in, in 2012. And then, uh, and then you have the issue of now you can't export to other nations because they may not share your uh, interest in genetic engineering. And so for me as a scientist who, you know, looks at the work of folks like Monica Schmidt and others who just... You know, I just am enamored at the fact that these these technologies are there and they were created to help people, yet the paper was published five years ago and that technology is not solving a problem.
2: It's true that there are many types of crops that have been developed using various biotechnological methods, and they aren't gaining a lot of acceptance or use around the world for a variety of different reasons, including precautionary policies, including the worry about trade with certain parts of the world, including the European Union, which technically, I, I guess I guess, ever since um, the dawn of GM crops being commercialized since the 1990s, they've had a much more precautionary stance against crops created from biotechnology than say the United States or Brazil or Argentina. And of course, um, we don't want to jeopardize our trade to any part of the world. And I think that that has held back many countries and their farmers from planting biotech crops.
1: Well, I, I'll just say that precaution is a luxury and that when you, um, you know, the folks in, you know, in the developing world who need something today, they don't share your level of, uh, of risk, right? They don't or your, your level of concern. You know, their concern is a very different one that they need the calories and they are willing to roll the dice with new technology potentially that has been, you know, that has never been shown to be a problem or cause harm, yet they're not allowed to have that technology or people are influencing that, that those decisions from the industrialized world. And, you know, I don't mean to get, you know, too cranky about it, but it's something that keeps me awake at night because I sit and think. That's why this podcast is here. You know how can we get people to understand this and talk about it and share this podcast and say, look at the effect that standing against crop technologies is having in the developing world. And we have a problem that we could solve. We could solve it. We or at least strongly reduce the risk. Yet we can't because Europe won't accept the crop that this that this country exports, or uh, you know that or the government uh, has a different level of tolerance. Which, you know, are usually ruled by a few more elite folks than the subsistence farmers that are in the field. And so, anyway, I don't mean to get too cranky. Maybe, I'll just, <laughs> but what are some other solutions that are potentially on the horizon?
2: Do you mean in the field of biotechnology or in general? Well, in general, I mean,
1: I'm good across mm-hmm. the board. So it could be biotechnology, but are there more simple things that people can do in the developing world that, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know, some sort of uh, solar dryer or so, I don't know, is there any new technology that could assist in limiting the risk?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin. So there are many different uh, possible solutions that are both technologically feasible and also cost effective. So you alluded to one of them, which has to do with uh, dry, well, drying food adequately. So there's a team of us that's led by Kent Bradford at University of California, Davis that have worked on developing what we call the dry chain. So if we're gonna go back to food supply chains, if you don't mind if we go back there. Here in the United States and in and many parts of the industrial world, we have what's called a cold chain, not just for our food, but also for our medical supplies such as vaccines. In which we work to keep food and medicines as cold as possible from the time that they are produced all the way to the time that they reach the consumers or the patients. And that really is, as you alluded to earlier, Kevin, a luxury, because in order to keep food and medicines dry, I'm sorry, to keep them cold, we need electricity, we need refrigerators and freezers, and that all runs on a reliable, electrical source. Now there are many parts of the world where electricity flickers on and off during the day for hours at a time, or there are certain parts of the world that have no access to electricity. So they can't be refrigerating their food. They can't be freezing it certainly. And so instead what we're working on is developing instead of a cold chain, what we call a dry chain. And our slogan is make it dry, keep it dry throughout the food supply chain from the moment that it's harvested all throughout storage to the time that the consumer eats it. Basically, what can you do to keep the food as dry as possible to reduce the amount of microbial pathogens, including fungi, as well as bacteria and viruses from destroying the food and potentially sickening people. And that would involve a number of different fairly simple technologies, including drying beds where you can lay out the crops and then blow dry heat over them and then storing them, for example, in these hermetically sealed bags of uh, improving basic storage. So in, in in Nigeria, where I've worked before, there are these nice corn cribs that allow for air circulation that prevent the corn sitting at the bottom to get a, to gather a lot of moisture and hence produce a lot of aflatoxin. As long as you have the air circulating throughout the uh, the storage, then that helps to reduce the risk of excessive moisture as well. So there's lots of fairly simple solutions in storage.
1: Yeah, really, that was my next question that since this is happening in the hot and humid part of the world, how do you dry something in the humid climate in the absence of electricity or or some sort of power to remove the humidity? But I think that is a really good answer. Well, it sounds like a really interesting project and a great way to, um, to help mitigate the effects of mycotoxins. Are there ways that, you know, that passive ways to solve the problem, like maybe a specific kind of diet or foods that can help mitigate the effects of of mycotoxins?
2: That's a great question. There are definite ways that have been shown to reduce the harmful effects of, I'll, I'll focus on aflatoxin here. So leafy green vegetables are great for us for so many reasons. And one that we probably don't know about is that if we consume them at the same time as some other food that has aflatoxin, then they actually help to sequester the aflatoxin in our gastrointestinal tract so that we excrete it rather than having the aflatoxin get through our bloodstream and then harming our livers. So specifically, leafy green vegetables contain chlorophyll, and it's the chlorophyll that absorbs the aflatoxin. In addition, if we consume foods such as cruciferous vegetables, which contain, well, the the compound is called glucoraphanin and then it's changed into sulforaphane. And then not just cruciferous vegetables, but also vegetables in the onion and garlic and leeks family, the, the allicin. The, the allium vegetables, then they have particular compounds that help to induce what are called phase two enzymes in our livers that help to de- detoxify not just aflatoxin, but a variety of carcinogens that we run into in our diets in our environments that we're exposed to daily. And one of our most interesting studies that came out of China showed that when one particular population in Qidong, China, um, switched from consuming a lot of corn to consuming a lot of rice instead, then liver cancer mortality in just that one county in China dropped by nearly half over the course of 30 years. And so there are certain crops that have higher levels of aflatoxin, like corn and peanuts, and then others like rice and wheat that have lower levels. And so one other solution is simply to, if where it's feasible, to switch to crops, consuming crops that have much lower levels of aflatoxin in them.
1: Well, that's really cool. I mean, the, you know, the typical science approach when someone says uh, detox, right, is, yeah, right. But this is a legitimate way that diet can actually remove this because it's a naturally occurring product that is likely to be affected by other naturally occurring products. <laughs> uh, so eat your veggies, right? Exactly. So Dr. Felicia, if anyone would like to know more about you and what you do and, you know, the, the work on aflatoxin, where should they look?
2: You can all take a look at my uh, Michigan State University website. You can also feel free to email me any questions at fwu at msu.edu, and I'm happy to entertain your questions.
1: That's wonderful, and I'll make sure that the link is inside the show notes. So, Dr. Felicia Wu, thank you so much for being a guest and providing a really, really interesting look at a problem that I think most people don't know about, but I think really would be concerned about. So thank you so much for your time today.
2: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Falta. It was a pleasure to talk with you.
1: And for everyone listening, thank you again for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Share this story with friends. It's so important for us to appreciate what's happening in other parts of the world that aren't as fortunate as we are to have not only crops that have less likelihood to have these toxins, but also have intricate systems that are surveilling the crops to ensure that the food system is safe and has integrity. Uh, It also gives us a lot more appreciation for everything that shows up on our plate. Thank you so much for listening to Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Collabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Collabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.